Good morning. Uh, for those uh, who don't know me, my name is Justin Sitzma, and uh, I am the Director of Worship and Outreach here at Courtright, uh, and it's a privilege to be with you this morning. Alex sends his uh, regards and regrets. Uh, he is preaching at St. Andrew's Fergus, and this will be his second last Sunday before they have their uh, their new uh, pastor, Peter Bush, who's going to be starting in October, and so he's been serving in, in, in there as an interim moderator for the past like 18 months, and I know that he's ready to be done because he wants to hang out with you guys more. Um, so uh, uh, that will conclude at the end of this month, and so uh, I am uh, honored and privileged to be uh, sharing with you this morning. Um, we've had a great summer working through uh, various psalms. Uh, we kind of picked them at random depending on uh, you know what we were sort of feeling, um, and next week, we're going to be starting uh, a series working through the early uh, chapters of Genesis. And Alex and Allison and I, we've been hard at work and reading and praying and just working through what that's going to look like. Um, but this week, we had just a one-week buffer where I was thinking to myself and praying to myself, okay, what um, would be a good message? What would be a good thing for us to hear as we enter into a, a new season where um, kids, you're back to school on Tuesday, sorry. Um, and, and there's, it's, it's a, just a new season with a new um, busyness where we need to maybe um, have, a, have a message that sends us and propels us into that, um, into a busy fall season, especially as we head into, uh, you know, construction zones and that kind of thing. It's just, I, I hope that this will center us on, on making sure we don't lose sight of, uh, of what God has called us to. One of the things I, I am really excited about um, is are the opportunities that have presented themselves um, with our focus, kind of a renewed focus on being active and welcoming na- uh, neighbors here in the University Village, that we've been setting some goals surrounding hospitality in our building, in our property, and in the city, ultimately. And we have some really cool God stories uh, that have precipitated as a result of our community garden this summer, uh, through onside sports that have been here for five weeks of the summer, and the beginnings, not the end, but the beginnings of our neighborhood survey, and we're going to share some of those stories as we feel it's appropriate just to let you know about some of what's been happening here, because it's been really cool. And I'm really excited about all that. I'm really, really excited about that. However, this is the danger. The danger is if we don't have what I'm going to call a biblical framework for what it truly is to love our neighbor then none of this will have any staying power. None of it will have any, any weight. So what better place to start from than the parable of the Good Samaritan? which is likely familiar to all of us, whether you've been a Christian many, many years, whether you are just learning and growing, or whether you are even, um, you're here and you're not even a follower of Jesus. It's sort of become synonymous, this phrase, Good Samaritan, has become synonymous with someone who goes out of their way to do something good, to the point where it's occasionally a good idea to sort of reclaim what Jesus says a, a Good Samaritan is. So my hope and prayer um, is that in this message, God will stir our hearts to have the heart of Jesus for people not just inside this community, but that we would be brimming with overflow for love of neighbor. And we're going to flesh that out a little bit this morning. So let's read from Luke's narrative of this in chapter 10, 
starting at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. So in verse 25, the expert in the law, or some of your translations might say lawyer, he asks this question. It's a good question. It's an important question. He says, how do I inherit eternal life? The problem is, as is usual for these people as they approach Jesus, they're not asking to truly get an answer. They're, uh, they're asking to test him and to catch him in some sort of scandal. And in verse 26, as Jesus often does, he responds to a question with what? Another question. And, and he's not like, he's not trying to dodge him. He's doing what any good mentor or uh, counselor or therapist will do. They ask good questions. And the reason they ask good questions is because they want to help you arrive at the answer. So in verse 27, the man answers by reciting two sections of scripture. He recites the Shema, which is what the Jewish people would recite uh, three times daily. From, uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says these words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. But he actually goes a little step further. This is interesting. He shows that he truly is an expert of the law. He knows what is in the Pentateuch. He quotes kind of a, a truncated, smaller version of Leviticus 19, verse 18, which says this in full. It says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, 
it's possible, as some scholars believe, that the expert in the law was simply, simply sort of parroting back what he had already heard that Jesus was saying. That Jesus had been sending this message that the great, the great commandment was not only love of God, but it was to follow that love of neighbor. So he may have been aware of this, um, I, I'm going to say, new teaching in quotes, because it's not really a new teaching at all. But he wants to hear this from Jesus himself. And Jesus gives him kind of a little golf clap. He's like, great job, you answered correctly. Do this and you will live, he says. Do this and you'll flourish, not only here on this earth, but you will flourish in the new creation, in the life to come. But in verse 29, the expert then asks the question to kind of press in a little further. He says, okay, who? Who is my neighbor? The word for neighbor literally means the one who is near. The people around us, which kind of makes sense. Um, traditionally, Jews understood this as simply their fellow Israelites. Like if you go back to that passage in Leviticus, it says, Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor. So it, it, the, the presumption is that these are people within your proximity, people within your tribe. And he's trying to press in and say, is, who is my neighbor? Where, what are the boundaries? They tended to exclude from that category of neighbor other ethnicities. And it says he asked the question to justify himself. And that, that's the same language that we use when we talk about how God justifies us, that we are made righteous. He's wanting to know that he's right. He's wanting to know that he is correct in his belief that there are boundaries and that there are limits to those who God calls us to love. And in classic Jesus form, he again, he doesn't answer the question. He doesn't say, oh, you just need to love your Jewish friends. Oh, you, you, you know, no, you need to love everyone. He, he doesn't answer that. He answers with a parable, a short story. Now, this parable is kind of unique because it's um, a lot unlike his other parables. A lot of his other parables are set in fictional kingdoms, fictional places with fictional people, whereas the location here is very real. And the story might even be real. Some scholars suggest that this could be an anecdotal story that has been circulating around in Jesus' time. And just so to, so to really set, set the story in its proper context, I want to just take a few moments and give us a real understanding for this parable, because I think it's going to be very helpful as we think about the implications for what this looks like in our life today. And especially for those that you've been, maybe if you've been around church a long time, you're like, I have heard this story since I was uh, like two or three years old. Sometimes we can kind of lose the, the beauty and the meaning of, of something like this. And I want to give credit where credit's due. Um, I'm indebted to uh, a lot of commentaries I read this week and as well uh, uh, a sermon I listened to a number of months ago from a, a man by the name of uh, John Mark Comer, uh, who's a pastor out in Portland, Oregon. And, uh, and I, as I listened to, to these, uh, these words and as I read through these commentaries, I was just blown away at what I was hearing and reading and discovering. So this is, I, I hope that you'll enjoy this as well. So let's kind of go back to the beginning of this narrative of the, uh, of the parable. So Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he had been attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So there's about 25 kilometers in between Jerusalem 
and Jericho. Jerusalem is way up high. Jericho is below sea level, right around the Dead Sea. You're going to be going up over a kilometer in elevation. So the decline going downward is quite significant. And you'll see, there's a picture here. Um, the, the path is actually physically treacherous with narrow, winding paths. Um, whereas even as late as like less than 100 years ago in the, in the 1930s, it was still considered a very dangerous path. But it wasn't just a dangerous path because it was physically treacherous. It was dangerous because there was a, a ton of spots, as you can see here, there was a ton of spots for robbers to kind of hide behind a rock and then jump out and attack you. The road had gained such notoriety um, that it was known as the way of blood, or literally the red way. It was a hot spot for thievery. So this man is robbed and stripped and beaten and left for dead. The Jewish hearers, when they heard this, would not have been surprised by this happening because this road was infamous. They, they knew about it. Immediately, they would have this image of what that looks like. Verse 31. A priest happened to be going down that same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. It uses the word happened there. A priest happened to be walking by. There's this sense that it was a, a mere coincidence and chance since the road was sparse and it's likely the man had been lying there for some time. Now we read this. The priest walked by. The Levite walked by. We read that and we're, we're a bit bewildered by it. At least I know that I have been. I'm like, what is wrong with these guys? Why, why wouldn't they help this poor man? Why on earth would this priest, this Levite, these highly regarded men of God, revered by Jewish people, why would they neglect this dying man? It just it seems reprehensible to us. But I think there's actually a little bit more going on here. And so we're going to dive into this a little bit more. So the priests and the Levites, their work was in the temple in Jerusalem. But they would have often lived in Jericho. So they would work in the temple on a two-week rotation. And we think like an eight-hour shift is, is long or a 12-hour shift. They were there for a very long time away from their families. So then they'd head back to Jericho with their payment. And um, unfortunately, the first century, they didn't have direct deposits. Uh, they, they didn't even really often pay you with, uh, with currency. They would pay you with grain and animals. So they'd be, they'd be bringing home this animal. They were literally, I can't say bringing home the bacon because they were kosher. They were, I guess, bringing home the briskets. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that was awful. I, I apologize for that. <laughs> now, in your spare time this week, when you have a, a few moments, you tomorrow's a holiday, so you'll definitely have time for this. I want you to uh, to read through Leviticus, not all of it, just nine, uh, verse uh, chapter twenty-one and twenty-two, and you're going to find lots of fascinating laws. Saw lots of really fun stuff, including some laws about food sanitation. If your food comes into contact with something unclean, like, say, a man bleeding out, dying on the road, presumed to be dead, um, that's problematic. That food is going to be unclean, and it will be not able to be used for anything. 
So not only if you touch that person and they become dead and you say you say you have an ox and you put that poor man on the ox and that man dies on routes to wherever you're going to take him, that the ox is unclean. Now you're unclean. Um, it's a big problem. And there is a little minor concession in the uh, in the Levitical laws where it says you could become unclean for a, a relative, a close family member, but not any more than that. So just picture this. You're getting off of a two-week shift. You're exhausted. You just want to get home to see your family. It's a dangerous road. If you've stopped there, um, if you stop there, there's a good chance that those robbers are still hiding out, waiting to kind of entrap you, and they're going to come and rob you as well. There's a chance that this guy is dead, or at least very soon he's going to be dead. And now you've wasted your, the means of feeding your family you can understand that it's a little bit more challenging than, oh man, I can't believe that priest was so rude. Now, they could have made a justification to help. And this is kind of where Jesus is going with this. So the priest walks by and, and he doesn't even get close. He, he stays as far away as possible. The Levite, he comes along and he gets a little bit closer. It says in verse 32, he says, he came to the place and saw him, which is more than it says about the priest. And it's possible uh, that the, the Levite felt that maybe he wasn't quite as bound to some of the Levitical laws. And so he said, OK, I don't think I'm going to touch this. I'm just going to leave it alone. And he carried along on his way. And there's something actually kind of hierarchical going on in what Jesus is talking about here. See, the priest was viewed as kind of the, the highest level of pious religious spiritual leadership. And the Levite was next in line. And so presumably what Jesus' audience was waiting to hear, what they were waiting to hear was that, okay, so it wasn't the priest, it wasn't the Levite, oh, that means it's going to be one of us, one of our peers. It's going to be a Jewish layperson. You can kind of modernize this by saying, you know, let's say the Pope of, of the Roman Catholic Church walked by and, and did nothing. And then maybe uh, just kind of a, a country clergy walked by and, and then did nothing. And then you're kind of expecting, oh, but it's going to be just one of, one of you guys that comes in and saves the day, that you're the, the hero of the story. That is what they were expecting. But as always, Jesus loves to subvert the narrative by going in a totally unexpected direction. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, which is what it says about the Levite as well. And when he saw him, this is the difference, when he saw him, he took pity on him. That his compassion moved him more than what he would have known, if anything, about the religious laws. It was a Samaritan that took pity on him. And, and I don't know that we have a framework for uh, what a Samaritan means in this day. We see it in the news all the time. I, in fact, I think I saw it a couple weeks ago in the news where you see things like, you know, a good Samaritan stopped and saved that mother and her baby. Or a good Samaritan climbed up that tree and, and brought that cat out for, for that poor little girl. You know, like you, that's the kind of stuff you, you read about. And, and the, the people will just say, you know, use this phrase kind of flippantly without any regard to the, the, the background story. So going back to our parable, we just think, oh, well, it's some nice person that decided to help out. We should be like the Samaritan. But the layers of this go so much deeper than just kind of a, a moralistic story like that. It's, it gets even more incredible and more miraculous and beautiful. The second Jesus said the word Samaritan, their jaws would have dropped. 
And to know why, just here's a, a really quick refresher. Some of, some of you might be familiar with this. Some of you might have heard, you know, when you look at the story of, of, the, uh, of the woman at the well uh, in John 4 and other passages, we might have been given some context for this. But um, just as a, a little refresher here. Here's a little map. So you can see uh, in the bottom, in the green area, there's Samaria and Jerusalem. Centuries before Jesus, um, most, but not all, of the people of Israel were forced into exile by Assyria, way in kind of the northeast there. But what happened was, the people more in the north area of, of Israel, um, in the region of Samaria there, uh, the Assyrians, they sent back down women for the people that were left there to intermarry with. So that was kind of where all of this went down. Their descendants became known as Samaritans. Now, Assyria, let's just put this in context. They came and they took all of the people, not all, but many of the people of Israel, and put them into hard labor and slavery uh, again. After, you know, after being freed from slavery in Egypt, they just can't seem to win. But Assyria was seen as the nemesis. They were seen as the oppressor of the Jews. And the people that would have intermarried with them, so that those women that came down and and the Assyrian kingdom was like, hey, you can restart, you can rebuild your population here. The people that caved into that, that gave into that, they were seen as half-breeds. They were seen as apostates. They were seen as heretics. And in turn, the Samaritans saw the Jews as racist and they saw them as cruel. So this wasn't just like a simple racial tension. This had been bubbling and, and happening for centuries. It was not a good scene. There was warfare. There was acts of terrorism. There was violence back and forth. Before hearing this part of the story, there's actually a good chance that when the hearers of this story heard that someone had robbed them, they're like, oh, it was probably a Samaritan. It was probably a Samaritan. They hated each other, like hate in the real, raw sense of the term. And so this man that's asking Jesus, you know, who is my neighbor? He's trying to justify himself, kind of saying, um, I am, <laughs> I, I don't want to love people outside of this boundary here. So I just want to clarify that that is what you're okay with. So the hearer of the story is not a priest, not a Levite, not a Jewish layperson, but a Samaritan. Verse 34, so he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put him, then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. He goes all out here. He bandages his wounds, he poured oil and wine to disinfect, which wouldn't have been cheap. He put him on his donkey, he had, he brought him over to an inn, which we don't even know how far that would have been. It would have been a long journey, I'm sure. Inns were not very common. Um, and he offered to cover any extra expense. Like, this is significant. This is no small feat. And at great personal cost to the Samaritan. So Jesus ends the story. And he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? 
And the expert in the law replied, he said to the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The the language of Jesus' question, it could more correctly be asked as, who has become the neighbor? Who has become the neighbor? And so in this stunning reversal, for the priest and the Levite, they were the neighbor and they became strangers. The Samaritan, the stranger, the other, the enemy, he became the neighbor. This is remarkable. Like this was, uh, this would have been a complete paradigm shift for them. And Jesus' question is almost rhetorical. <laughs> because there's no question, there's no question about who the neighbor was. Verse 37, the man simply and rightly responds. He says, the one who had mercy on him and he couldn't even say the name Samaritan. I could imagine him kind of gritting his teeth. I hope that was helpful for us to kind of gain some context for this story because it's just, I, I was blown away as I was researching at, at the beauty and the depth and the, the subversive nature of what happens here. And I don't really know that we have a modern uh, context for something like this. I think actually the closest, interestingly enough, the closest thing I could think of um, that would be on the same level would be the, the current modern struggle between uh, Palestine and Israel. Um, that if you can imagine a, a Palestinian helping um, a, a Jew who had maybe been serving in the military against the Palestinians. Like that, that's the only thing I could possibly think of. But maybe you, maybe you could think of some other simple ones, like maybe a, a, Republican, a Republican helping a Democrat. <laughs> some, some ones that are a little bit more serious, like a, a racist helping a social justice advocate. An ISIS member helping a Christian. While those might be helpful in kind of bringing some category to this, none of those really accurately described what is at play here. So there's really two pieces to what Jesus was saying in this parable and what I believe he's saying to us now as well. And the first piece is this. Jesus universalizes neighbor. Jesus universalizes neighborhood. He's saying it's anybody and everybody. It's your least favorite person. It is also your favorite person. For the hearers of Jesus' story, they were confronted with the call to love not just those that are like them, which is what they thought, The Samaritan represents the people that would be inconceivable to extend love and mercy and grace to. It would be unthinkable to them that they would be neighbor. And so if Jesus calls the Samaritan a neighbor to the Jews, that means that everyone, because they're like the worst of the worst for them. So if if it's it's him, it's got to be everyone. Now, you might never think or say, because this isn't quite in our worldview, you might never think and say that someone or, or whatever is our enemy or that we hate someone. We don't tend to use that language like, you're my enemy. We don't say that kind of thing. However, there are probably entire groups of people that some of us carry a great deal of resentment for, disdain for. Jesus says those people are our neighbor. You know, we're about to enter election season here in Canada, which by the grace of God, is so much shorter than the election season down south. And, and, I, and I don't, I, I'm, I'm really grateful for that, seriously. Um, and, and I'm thankful that I don't think, at least in my perception, I don't think we're quite as divided as, as the states are on a lot of stuff. We still have our issues, for sure. 
But think about how you feel about the other side. Think about how you look at, at you know, progressives or how you look at conservatives or how you look at uh, the people who are kind of this, this grassroots movement that's even happening with Maxime Bernier and, and some, of that, some of what we've seen there. Maybe you look at that with trepidation and, and worry or maybe you look at that with curiosity and, and, and then when you hear people that talk against them, you're like, oh my gosh, you are the enemy. And, and we don't think that you know, with, with those terms, but we do approach things that way. We approach them as if all of a sudden we categorically disagree with them on everything. Jesus says they're our neighbor. Those that I identify as LGBTQ, Jesus says they're our neighbors. Atheists, people of other faith groups, those that stand in opposition to the freedom of Christians and people that persecute Christians around the world, they're our neighbor. People who work for organizations that we view as harmful to the sanctity of life, they too are our neighbor. And if any of those made you feel uncomfortable inside, that you're like, oh, uh, uh, that's kind of the point. That's sort of what Jesus was doing here. Now, obviously, there is a difficulty and a tension and a messiness to what this actually looks like. And some of you might struggle more than others. Some of you might bear, you know, just stronger feelings toward those um, with whom you fundamentally disagree with on things. But Jesus calls us to universally love our neighbor. But there is a danger in a call to love people without actually ever having to love a person. Let me say that again. There is a danger in a call to love people without ever actually having to love a person. So if you make your neighbor and everybody, and, uh, but you really don't make it about anybody in particular, we live a life where we kind of go by this mantra of, well, you know, I'm going to be kind and love God and love others in sort of this ethereal, like way up here kind of world. But if it doesn't take on any skin, it's kind of just utterly meaningless. This is, I believe, something common to all of us. That I don't, I don't know many people in the world, atheist, Christian, whatever, that would say, oh, well, you know what, I, we shouldn't love everyone. Like, I, I don't know anyone who says that. However, when push comes to shove, when things get uncomfortable, that's where it really, we're, we're, we're confronted, we're challenged, and we have to reconcile with how to deal with that, how to love even those particular people. So, not only does Jesus universalize, to extend those boundary markers, but he also particularizes neighbor. Jesus particularizes who we love. So he makes it clear that there is no boundary. There is no person on this earth that is not deserving of love because they are image bearers. They are made with, they, they are made and created by a loving God. That there is no boundary. But like I said, we can, take that so far that we don't do anything with it. So here's a crazy thought. What if when Jesus called us to love our neighbor, that he actually meant for us to love our neighbors, our neighborhood, the people in our midst, the people around us, the people that we are in community with, that maybe we don't even know them yet, but they are around us and we are neighbors to them. To quote uh, John Mark Comer, he says these words, What if our neighbor is more than our actual neighbor, but it's not less? 
What if our neighbor is more, so that's the universalization, but it's not less than that? So it's possible, when you think about the, uh, the first century hearers, the Jewish people, they needed to hear that your neighbor is more than just the person living next to you. Your neighbor is more than just the person living next to you. And maybe you need to hear that as well this morning. But for the 21st century follower of Jesus, I think there's another element of play, that your neighbor is not just someone out there, but someone right before you. That God has called us to be a faithful presence to the people around us. God has called us to be a steward to those people. So, and, and, and there are names and there are situations and there are people for us to actually press into and people to interact with and people to love and be neighbors to. It takes an abstract concept that can be kind of way out here in the ether and it makes it tangible. Now, I confess, this is a challenge, and I don't think this is a challenge just for me, but I think because I have the microphone, I'm going to sort of take us through a little exercise that I think would be helpful for us to do this week as we go about our week. Um, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually go through my neighbors, like my literal neighborhoods neighbors. I'm going to go from the people to the east of me, people to the west of me, people behind me, people in front of me. And I want to talk through what this actually looks like, tangibly speaking, and and maybe, maybe you'll identify with some of the challenges. And I would encourage you to do the same as you go about your week, as you think about the people beside you on either side, as the people across from you. So, I live on Paisley Road, only about five minutes from here. And my na- the neighbors to the west, um, their names are Wendy and Mike. And they're a wonderful couple. They are a Roman Catholic family uh, that when we moved in five years ago, they were so excited because they were like, oh, there's a pastor moving in next door. Finally, someone, you know, because I guess the people that were there before us, they didn't get along with super well. And... Um, they're, they're a beautiful couple, and they also have, uh, they have a son also named Justin, and a granddaughter also named Iris, and so, uh, <laughs> it's just kind of, kind of weird, uh, random, and, and so we, we, we have a lot of common ground. We, I've had some great chats with Mike about theology. He's a, he's a history buff, and so he loves to talk about the early church and that kind of stuff. And, and they're just, they're really easy to love. It's no problem. Like, love your neighbor as yourself, done. No problem. If you can't guess, I'm going from easy to hard. <laughs> my neighbor, my, my neighbors to the east, um, Steve and Nancy, they're really great as well. Um, Steve is a big guitar buff, so we have a lot in common. He works for Levy's Guitar Straps, and I've, I'm, I'm waiting to kind of get a little hookup from him because he's got some good stuff. Um, and uh, Nancy, she is involved in local schools doing pottery, uh, and she actually they have a kiln like in their garage that she takes all the all the students' pottery and, and does it all. Like they're just a, a really cool couple. Um, but I feel like, and maybe I'm just imposing this, but I feel like I've made a few mentions of me kind of working in church ministry. And I'm worried that it's shut the door a little bit, that they're kind of like, I'm not sure about this guy. Like, we always have good conversations. Uh, You know, I'll be mowing my lawn and I'll stop and chat with them because they're outside and under their gazebo. And and it's always pleasant, but I can just feel this distance a little bit. And so I've been thinking as I've gone through this week of how can I love them in a greater, more tangible way? They're not difficult to love, but it's kind of hard to get that extra bridge over. Across the street, um, our neighbors are Tim and Sarah. 
they have two really, really sweet kids. One of them was born just a couple months after Iris. And so um, one of the things that we did was when uh, I, Iris, when she was born, she grew out of her newborn diapers like that. Like, so we had a, a ton of extra. She was a, a hefty kid. Um, and so, and so we, uh, sorry, she's not in the room. She's fine. She's <laughs> um, and so uh, we had a bunch of newborn diapers and we, and we just knocked on the door and just gave them. And, and it was, it was really nice. It was really, we had a great time um, just chatting and we've really had a great time getting to know them a little bit, but we struggled to let it go to a deeper level. And I feel badly about that. I think part of it is the pace of our lives, both them and us at times. And partly it's because Tim and Sarah are are people that are pretty public that they are very against Christianity. They see me and they kind of think, you don't really fit the mold of what I think a Christian pastor looks like. That's what they kind of think about. They they told me that outright. Um, and, And I appreciate that. And I appreciate that they've kind of let me into having some conversation and even Lindsay as well. Um, but I think it's still a challenge for them. You know, when I uh, when I was shifting jobs from from Lakeside Church to, to here at Courtright, um, uh, Tim he kind of caught wind that I had uh, resigned from my job, and, and and he goes he goes to me, good, you're finally out of that like crazy organization. And he wasn't talking about Lakeside specifically; he was talking about the church. <laughs> so, and then and then Sarah goes, no no no, Tim, he's still working at a church. <laughs> <laughs> But the other day, you know, one of them posted something a little bit inflammatory, inflammatory toward Christians on Facebook, and I, and I struggled whether to engage or not. I started typing out a response, and I, and I thought about, like, man, do I really want to get into, like, a spiritual debate over Facebook with people I'm trying to build bridges with? Ah, like, I, I still don't know what the right thing to do there was, but I, I, I resisted because I, don't, I didn't think it was going to be helpful. I didn't think it was going to be helpful. So again, it gets even more challenging. You go from people that are really easy to love, and Tim and Sarah are wonderful people that are easy to love, but it's harder to know how to engage with them in a more meaningful way. And so, again, I'm hoping that as we go through this exercise that you're thinking about the people around you. And then we have the neighbors behind us. And I've got to be honest, I don't actually know much about them other um, than that their dog barks a lot in the middle of the night. Um, they, they, have, they have an auto body shop that I'm pretty sure is illegally placed there. Um, <laughs> and they have loud parties where they rev the engines of their trucks at two in the morning. I've definitely called the cops on them about twice because, I, yes, I am a 90-year-old curmudgeon. <laughs> If I'm really honest, I've actually considered dropping a note in their mailbox anonymously, kind of saying like, hey, maybe you guys should go find some acreage up north somewhere. You, you seem like with your, with, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I know that this is wrong. <laughs> so, but I just, that was just in my weaker moments. I'm just being human. I'm just being human. But then Wendy and Mike, our Catholic neighbors, they, they informed me that uh, one time they, they tried to talk, them, talk to them and then they, the next day there was all sorts of beer cans thrown in their yard. So, um, so I, just, I, I refrained. And I repented. I repented of that, of that terrible attitude. And yes, I am mortified by the thoughts that come to my mind sometimes. They're harder to love, are they not? They're harder to love. Maybe you have a neighbor, neighbor like these guys. I'm still trying to figure this one out. 
I'm, I'm, I'm with you in that this is challenging. And again, this is why the reason I am naming my neighbors, the reason I am putting situations is because, again, it's really easy to keep this kind of way up here at 30,000 feet, but never bringing it down to a human level. And that's what Jesus does when he calls this Samaritan to be the hero of the story. So I hope that you'll take some time this week to do a little exercise like that. To think about the people to your right and to your left. To think about the people across the street from you or across the hall or across, yeah, or in your complex or in your dorm. You're, maybe you're thinking right now about how well you know them or how well you don't know them. The names you know, the names you don't know. What sort of thoughts and emotions come up for you when you think about engaging uh, with the people that God has called you to be a faithful presence to? Does that excite you? Or does it give you fear and trepidation? So there's that, but there's also this other piece of thinking about a little bit more about courtright. What about our neighborhood? What about our neighbors? Have we fully embraced our role as a community that is meaning to be a faithful presence in this University Village neighborhood? What will that actually look like for us? What will that actually tangibly take the form of? And, and um, thankfully, I'm not the only one kind of leading this charge uh, because I have, I have neighbors that have no interest in church that are giving me suggestions. I have some of you that have given beautiful suggestions. Um, and, and we're going to try to put, uh, put some wheels behind this in the weeks and months and years to come. That is our hope and our desire. I'm not an expert in this. I'm simply being convicted by God's word, as I hope that all of us are in some way this morning. So I want to leave us with this question. What if we could see our neighborhoods and this neighborhood from God's vantage point? What if we could see our neighbors from God's vantage point? I would put to you this morning that you might see a whole lot of people proverbially bleeding on the side of the road. Neighbors to love. Neighbors to extend mercy to. People that God loves. People that Jesus died to save. We're reminded of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Verse 19, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he was committed to us and he he has committed to us the ministry and the message of reconciliation. When we look at the love of Christ poured out on the cross, Paul says Christ's love is what will compel us to live fully and completely for him. And because of the reconciliation that we have received, God calls us into that very same ministry of reconciliation. Jesus reminds us that this starts with our neighbor. Let's pray.
God, this is a hard teaching. This is hard to sit with when we put skin on this and we think, God, who are you calling us to love? Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would bring mind uh, people around us. People that we engage with on a weekly basis. God, in the stillness of this moment, would you, would you speak? God, would we hear from you? God, for where we have failed in this endeavor of loving neighbor, God, would you uh, extend grace to us, forgive us where we have, uh, where we have faltered. God, give us the courage to try again. Give us the courage to love even when it is uncomfortable. Hmm. Just pray your blessing over us as we uh, prepare to leave this space and go about our day, go about our week. Would you bring to mind people that you're calling us to love and be neighbors to? In your name. Amen.